0: 742. Now, around a month ago, Indonesia was hosting Asia's elite athletes for the Asian Games. Then, last week, the country was hit by a magnitude 7.5 earthquake, and then a deadly tsunami, the power of which, as I said before, seemed to take scientists by surprise. It left two coastal cities, Dongala and Paolo, on the island of Sulawesi, in ruins. The death toll has risen to 1347 according to the BBC. The bodies of children were found in the rubble of a church in southern Palu. I mean it's those individual stories that really always hammer home the heartbreak in these disasters. Professor Phil Cummins from the Research School of Earth Sciences at Australian National University joins us on the line for further discussion. Good morning to you. Good morning. Can you start with us why uh, there are all these articles in the last few days talking about the surprise factor? I mean, w- whenever there's a, a big earthquake like this, isn't an, a tsunami a kind of natural consequence, or at least a, a partially expected consequence?
1: Not necessarily. Um, for a tsunami to occur, first of all, the earthquake has to be underwater, under the sea, and it has to cause some kind of vertical movement of the seabed which will displace water vertically and push it out of gravitational equilibrium and that most often happens with the case of what we call a thrust fault where you know two blocks are being pushed together and one sort of pops above the other and that is very efficient in generating a tsunami and that's what's responsible for most of the tsunamis we've seen uh, Though that typically occurs in a subduction zone where one plate slides beneath another but these, this kind of fault was um, a strike-slip fault meaning that it involves only horizontal motion. Um, most of that was on, under land, not underwater. Um, and so um, it's not clear at all why it would generate such a large tsunami.
0: But this was certainly a tsunami, travelling up to 800 kilometres an hour, waves as high as 6 metres, sweeping on shore. Is, is that what did most of the damage um, when we think of this death toll being so high?
1: I don't know. I think that remains to be seen, uh, particularly because we haven't heard much from Gongala, where the epicenter was, uh, although I have heard, you know, rumors that that's not the damage there isn't as bad as some people thought. But uh, in any case, I think we have to sort of wait and see what happens, uh, what the final fatality count is before we know how many people were killed by the earthquake, uh, which would be due to building collapse, and how many people were killed by the tsunami.
0: We uh, saw a recent earthquake in Hokkaido, Japan. It's one natural disaster after another. It feels like this year, but that, that, it always, I guess, feels like that with um, media reporting in the 21st century, just so much more awareness of, of these disasters. In the historic sense, though, this is part of a ring of fire, right?
1: Uh, yeah, well, that's right. Uh, the ring of fire sort of refers mainly to the uh, subduction zones where plates slide beneath each other that more or less rings the Pacific and also extends through Indonesia, and those cause very large earthquakes as well, as well as volcanic activity. So that's usually what the ring of fire refers to, but, you know, in a more general sense, it's just referring to these belts of tectonic activity, and certainly this fault, the Palukoro fault, is part of that belt of tectonic activity, even though it's not a subduction zone.
0: We wouldn't classically be part of the ring of fire here in Korea, but last November we did see a magnitude 5.4 earthquake in the southeastern city of Pohang, and there have been concerns about a rising number of earthquakes here and whether we're prepared. What's the um, likelihood of, of any sort of connection, you know, regionally speaking? Can you explain to us how these huge faults connect together?
1: Um, well, there's sort of a sinuous, uh, you know, you can sort of follow the plate boundaries, and that's sort of a sinuous connection all along the Pacific Rim. But you know, typically, uh, uh, it doesn't take that much of a change in the geometry of that uh, that uh, plate boundary to stop rupture. So the ruptures tend to segment and, and only occur, you know, over a certain limited uh, range of the plate boundary. So it's unlikely that, you know, you'd have a rupture spanning from, you know, the equator all the way up to Japan, for example. It seems unlikely in the extreme.
0: Okay. But one thing we'll also remember is the sequence of dozens of aftershocks here. And, and when you've got such a big earthquake, as we've seen in Indonesia, those aftershocks are concerning, aren't they? More than just concerning. Highly dangerous.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, the rule of thumb is that an aftershock, uh, the biggest aftershock can be as big as one magnitude unit below the main shock. And so this is a roughly seven and a half magnitude earthquake, so you could get aftershocks of up to 6.5. I actually don't know how big they've gotten, but you know, that's certainly big enough to cause damage, particularly to buildings that have been already partially damaged by the main shock. So yes, they're very dangerous.
0: How do these dangers affect rescue and restoration efforts for rescue workers, but also, as I say, for those who will be looking to um, rebuild?
1: Well, they just greatly increase the risk, you know, trying to go into um, uh, damaged buildings to uh, either rescue people in the first place or, you know, try to get belongings, valuables. Uh, It greatly increases the risk if you're caught in some damaged building when an earthquake happens. There's a reasonable, you know, risk that it, you know, it might collapse, and, and you could be injured. Um, so certainly, and that's certainly a big factor for uh, rescue efforts in the first few days after the earthquake, when they're they are trying to get into these damaged buildings to dig people out.
0: Indonesian authorities have been criticised for the failure of the warning system in, in a country that should know a fair bit about this. Uh, would it have been possible to reduce the death toll, do you think, if if things had been done differently?
1: Uh, I think so, but not by the means that people are talking about. I think there's been a lot of uh, sort of obsession with the technical failure of the warning, what's called a failure of the warning system. I was just reading a timeline uh, printed uh, produced by the European Union, you know, and it really... Uh, you know there was a strike slip earthquake, which is not expected to cause a lot, large tsunami. They issued an alert within five minutes uh, about thirty five minutes later. they detected a small tsunami as expected on a tide gauge, and so they canceled their alert. And it really is sort of the classic thing that any other tsunami warning system would do uh, first of all, furthermore, that warning was cancelled uh, around the time we think from reports that the tsunami was hitting the beach so you know, no one, if someone was on the beach at the time the alert was canceled, they were already doomed. The failure in the system would have been in the public education and making sure people understood that if they experience strong shaking and they're on low-lying coastal area, they should seek high ground immediately without waiting for any warning. So the failure is, I think, is not in the technological part of the system, which, you know, judging from the timeline, worked exactly as one expects but rather in the public awareness. And, and uh, you know, uh, we, we, I call it a failure, but it's very, it can be very difficult to educate. Uh, you know, this, it's just got a massive problem There are many coastal communities, and to educate them all and make sure that message gets through is very difficult. So although I call it a failure, you know, it's a very big challenge. So it's not surprising that, you know, maybe they, they still have more work to do.
0: We know that Australia, where you're based, is sending $5 million to Indonesia uh, to, to support efforts now. Uh, Britain is sending military aid in the form of a plane. Uh, what's really most needed at this point?
1: Uh, I, that's not really my, um, my uh, uh, area of expertise. But I would say, wa- uh, typically, uh, from what I have heard, uh, water, uh, water purification Uh, Water itself, of course, you know, supplies of water, uh, water for purification facility, uh, and medical facilities to try to treat the injured. Uh, There are typically, with tsunami, many injured with very severe injuries that can get infected very quickly, and so they need medical attention very quickly.
0: Drawing further then on your area of expertise, is there anything the international community can do um, going forward, you know, even beyond the immediate aftermath here, to, to better support countries... Like Indonesia, who find themselves in in the heart of a, or the epicenter of such a huge earthquake
1: well, I think that that you know we need to understand uh, you know from uh, my point of view side, the scientific point of view, we need to understand why this earthquake did generate such a large tsunami. It is very surprising uh, people are you know suggesting it might be due to a submarine landslide triggered by the earthquake. we don't really know, and I think that will take a lot of work to figure out why that is because that's because that, cause that Could have implications for other warning systems that might face a similar event. But the other thing is to find out why didn't these people leave the beach? Were they simply not aware that 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 they needed to do that? Did they not know what to do, where to go? Oh, and and you know, had they been exposed to any of the messaging, the community awareness messages that I know the Indonesian officials make considerable effort to to you know disseminate. Um, You know, why weren't they aware? Why didn't they act? I think those questions really need to be asked, asked. And then we try, need to try to sort of prepare other communities and make sure they will know when such an event happens, that they need to seek high ground if there's large shaking, strong shaking.
0: Yeah, I mean, just exploring that a little further while we have a moment, uh, there's been a lot of media coverage in Australia on that specific question of how the quake caused a tsunami. And um, and from what I've gathered in this interview really it's just no way at this point to be definitive on it but there's a abc news uh, in australia has has created this um this kind of illustration of the seabed being dislodged by the earthquake and water being drawn down and this landslide effect underwater and then further out to sea water being forced up D- does that make sense as the most credible hypothesis at this point to you
1: I guess I would say yes. I mean that's that's the classic, um, you know, landslide uh, way a landslide generates a tsunami. It will draw down water at the head where material has failed and and left the slope, and then it will uh, lift up a water at the toe where material accumulates. So that's you know that's all pretty standard. And that is normally you know if there's an earthquake and the tsunami is unusually large, um, you can always appeal to that mechanism. And you know. Uh, If you don't know anything else, you can always say, well, it must have been a landslide. Uh, For myself, I think we should also look for other possible mechanisms. Maybe there was some kind of complicated faulting, for example, or I I, I don't know. I, I just think we ought to try to explore all possible avenues before we assume it was caused by a landslide.
0: Makes sense. Professor Cummins, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Okay, thank you.